Welcome to The The Get Together. Together. (laughs) It's our show about the nuts and bolts of community building that never gets old. Never. Uh, I'm your host, Bailey Richardson. I am a person at People & Company. Ooh, I'm Kevin Wynn. I am also a person at People & Company. I'm just following your lead. Each episode of this podcast... Kev and I interview people who have built communities about just how they did it. How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to thousands more members? And today we are talking to Chad Nelson. Chad. Chad, who is the CEO of one of our absolute favorite activist communities, the Surfrider Foundation. If you're a surfer, you probably know them. If you're not, the 411 is that in 1984, Three surfers in Malibu, California, started Surfrider to protect their home break from development and pollution. Today, there are 190 Surfrider chapters and clubs and over 500,000 activists and supporters worldwide. These chapters join forces to push forward the same purpose, protecting the world's ocean, waves, and beaches. Chad, now the CEO, started at Surfrider as a 28-year-old fresh out of grad school, And the foundation at that time had just six employees and 20 chapters. So it's grown a lot in his time. In our conversation, Chad shared a little bit about how he's expanded the organization and its impact. Kev, you were just like a drooling, curious... I wasn't wasn't drooling too much. (laughs) You and Chad have a total total bond. What stood out to you about Surfrider and about the conversation we had? Two words for you. Bring it on. Operational scale. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Sexy can I? <laughs> Operational scale. OS. Uh, you know, Surfrider operates at a, a certain scale. And I think it was really interesting to hear from an organization that's been around for 35 years. And to me, there are just all these nuggets around what they do today. You know, from having hundreds of chapters and they have this like one, 10, 100 way to think about like 100 chapters, 10 regions, one headquarters, way to break that up and think about how to support that network. We talked about their structure around it being a 501c3 and these bank accounts that all kind of wrap up into like under one single nonprofit. And finally, sustainability, how they have a sort of a portfolio of ways that they support the foundation from donors to member dues to partnerships. Um, It's that operational scale. And I feel like they're at this maturity with their organization that they've, you know, obviously it's hard work to continue raising money, supporting the work, doing the grassroots organizing, but they are doing it and they've created systems and structures and momentum to keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think if you're listening to this, like Surfrider is a developed community Mm -hmm. and Chad does a great job of sharing like the structures and the way that they think about these sort of like key pieces of motivating people and communication and resources and all of that. I think the only thing I'll add to like what stood out to me from this conversation was his use of the word fun. Yeah. Like, I think that they do hit a sweet spot there. And we didn't talk too much in our conversation about the demographics of Mm -hmm. Surfrider, but they're able to scan across the political spectrum and also age in a way that I think a lot of established, in particular, environmental groups haven't been successful. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it's surfing and that being at the center. But I also think just, like, the fact that they carve out space in a strategic conversation about the word fun. Yeah is really important yeah. to, like, get new people in the door. Yeah, and, and keep people around for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Cool. Okay. Without further ado, Chad. Yes. <laughs> so we got to get to know your team a little bit and in the process learn more about the history of Surfrider, which is something that I didn't know about as a surfer until we really met you guys. Sure. Um, but it's a pretty remarkable history. So, you know, today you guys are big. You have more than something like 50,000 members and 80 yep. chapters. Mm-hmm. But you started just in Malibu. Yep. And I was wondering if you could just tell the story of how Surfrider started and what made that group so special. No, for sure. I mean, and I should start by saying, you know, having surfers be organized around anything is like the most unlikely story. I mean, surfers really are like these lone wolves, right? Mm. They go out surfing. They often won't even tell their friends where they're going. They go by themselves and then they're in the water and everyone's kind of fending for themselves and there's secret spots and limited resources. So it is like a pretty unlikely group of people to be coming together. That said, and I'll get into the origin, you know, there is obviously community around surfing in so many ways, and that's part of what we're trying to tap into. But um, Surfrider was founded in 1984 in Malibu, which is, you know, one of the sort of iconic surf spots of the world. It was made famous by Gidget. Iconic surf spot, but dirty surf spot. It's so beautiful, but the water quality is Bad. Really yeah. dirty, and it mm. used to be much worse. Mm. Surfers, in the even in the early 80s, were still perceived as being sort of burned out, stoner, dropout society. It was a marginalized group of people. I mean, they thought they were cool, but the rest of the world maybe didn't. And surf spots were being polluted and destroyed. I mean, there's a surf spot in uh, Manhattan Beach called Ship Pipe because it was the sewer outfall. I surfed there on New Year's. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like... It's, Still you know, dealing now, with my tuberculosis yeah. or whatever. Sorry, and, uh, and, you know, Dana Point, uh, iconic surf spot right down the street from our office, destroyed by a harbor. You know, so we were losing surf spots and surfers weren't organized. They were just kind of like, this sucks. I guess we'll move to the next spot. And it was three guys that really came together in 1984. Um, it was an engineer from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Glenn Henning, who was a surfer. Lance Carson, who was kind of like a famous pro surfer. And a guy named Tom Pratt, who was actually an environmentalist. And Glenn was, I think, the driving force. And he was sort of inspired by the 1984 Olympics hmm. in Los Angeles. And it was like, wow, look at all these athletes standing for like world peace and this like idea of coming together through athleticism he's like and surfers aren't doing that Mm -hmm. um so these guys got active you know you kind of have like the environmentalist the scientist sort of visionary and the surfer and in malibu they malibu lagoon was notoriously polluted and in the middle of the summer it would fill up and they just bulldoze it open and send all the like nasty water right out into the middle of the lineup literally while the surfers were surfing there gosh and they were like enough and they got active, you know, and they were able to sort of effectively stop that problem. And then they started moving up and down the coast in California, fighting different problems. And the idea really just caught fire. And I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of surfers. Before my time, I was 14, not really thinking about these things. But surfers started to realize, oh, my goodness, we don't have to just be fatalist and accept whatever's coming at us. We can actually make a difference and control our destiny. Yeah. Is that something that I living in Southern California last year when I was living in LA, you start to realize being in the water every day, how aware you are of it for your health as a surfer. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that Mm -hmm. like, unless you're in the ocean every single day, 
you don't think as much about. Yep. Like, I don't think that many other sports deal with that awareness that it doesn't matter if you're woke or you're an environmentalist or not. The impact of water in your system and access to the beach is something that basically every single surfer actually has to run into. Yeah. I don't know that I know any other sports where that's the case. Yeah, I mean, you're immersed in the water, right? You lean over and it like drains out of your sinuses onto yes. like your laptop or whatever you're yes. working on. <laughs> Surfers are also in the water more than any other user group. Yes. There's more people swimming and going to the beach, but only half of them go in the, in the water and they're only doing it a week a year. You know, surfers are in the water hundreds of days a year. Scuba divers too, they're immersed, but they don't go as often. Yeah. Fishermen are on the top. So we're actually hmm. in the water and you know, you're duck diving under the waves. It's in your eyes, it's in your ears, it's going down your throat. You swallow water every time, whether you think you do or you don't. So you're right, you're like, faced with you know the consequences of the health of that environment if you go running and a truck drives by it's nasty but you're not you know this would be like maybe running in beijing on the smoggiest day uh would be the closest equivalent but surfers are the canary in the coal mine for ocean health because Hmm. they're feeling those impacts and you know the stories of people getting sick you know there are many yeah there are people who have died yeah and you know there's a guy in Malibu who has like a pacemaker and it was from some bacteria that he caught surfing at Malibu. Wow. So it's real. Wow. Uh, on the flip side, who better to advocate for ocean health that not only benefits them, but everybody else and all the marine life as well. Yeah. One thing that's amazing about Surfrider is not only that you have chapters all around the world, but how tangible the changes that you guys affect through yep. organizing and through legal work in different areas. Mm-hmm. Did those three originators of Surfrider n- know how to affect change? Like, had they studied it? And how has that evolved as you guys have gotten bigger, how you approach like tackling access issues or water quality issues in terms of legal work? Or, yeah, yeah they, h- how do you guys, how did you develop that recipe of how to affect change? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a couple things that happened that I think did that. Tom Pratt, who's one of the like original three, he understood that to solve these problems, you needed to affect political decision making. So Malibu Lagoon was controlled by state parks and or the way, you know, the water quality agency. And they were the one bulldozing the path that was sending the polluted water into the surfers. So he was the guy who said, okay. Who's making those decisions? How do we go impact that decision? Let's go organize and impact that decision, which is, you know, Civics 101. Mm -hmm. And so he had that know-how. The other thing that happened, it was in 1993, you know, I guess nine years into our sort of origin story, pretty legendary surfer and coastal attorney named Mark Massara was involved with Surfrider. And we sued a pulp mill in Humboldt that was dumping their effluent out into a surf spot in Humboldt, Northern California, and won the second largest Clean Water Act case in U.S. history at the time. And that put Surfrider on the map, mm. sort of nationally and globally. You know, we were featured in Life magazine when that was a thing. Mm. And um, that was a case where the political action wasn't working. We tried to, you know, lobby the, the permitters to regulate this, and they didn't probably because the pulp mill was powerful politically. And so we said, okay, let's sue them. I'm sure the people who are, you know, as a huge paper company didn't anticipate that a bunch of surfers were going to have the horsepower and the knowledge to win. Mm. 
And we did. And that also was a pivotal moment. That was when Surfrider really blew up because mm-hmm. it was the notoriety of that win hmm. and the unlikely story, right? What? A bunch of surfers took on this like giant paper company and won the second largest Clean Water Act lawsuit in the nation, hmm. cleaned up the surf spot and I, I think said, okay, there's another tool in the, the toolbox. Another guy who was really influential in Surfrider was named Gordon Labetz. And he was a surfer in Southern California and a doctor. And he came out of the Sierra Club. And so he believed in the grassroots model. Mm. And so it was in 1993 when this pulp mill case blew up and everyone was like, oh my God, this organization's great. Calls came in from around the country and we're like, oh, the organization was like three people. Like, mm. how, do we, how do we manage <laughs> this national or global interest? And Gordon was like, chapters. Yeah. Grassroots organizing. Surfers are organized around their communities. They know their communities best. Let's start the chapter model. So tell me about that change. Like, what do you know about how the organization had to change in order to do that? Because three people repeating their work up and down the coast is very different from a group of people enabling other people to do that work. Yeah. So how did that switch happen for the organization? I think it happened out of necessity. You know, I don't know. You want to, you calling in from New Jersey and you want to solve your problem? Great, solve it. I don't know what to tell you. I think it was this guy saying, hey, the Sierra Club has a model that seems to work, which is this chapter grassroots model. Let's emulate that and learn from them. So don't invent it yourself. Let's find something that seems to work and emulate it. And I think it was just because they were like naive and they were just like try- making it up as they go along. They were like, hey, let's just let go of control, right? We can't control this. And that I think is typically the hardest part. Yeah. Mm. And they, to their credit, they did. And that chapter model, which is, you know, something I came in when I, I started Surfrider in 1998, so not that much later. The chapter, I think we had 20 chapters when I started. And, uh, you know, we have 200 chapters in high school clubs and college clubs. That's been the latest boom, which we can talk about at some point, is the high, we have over 100 high school and college clubs now. That's awesome. Cool. That model is genius. Locals do know best. They're in their communities What's relevant on a beach in Florida is different than a remote beach in Washington state, culturally and geographically and uh, historically. You also have to advocate for solutions that are practical. It can't be pie in the sky. You can't like drop in on a parachute, tell people what they should do in their community and leave because you're gonna see them at the supermarket the next day. So you you actually have to solve problems. You can't just like throw grenades and say, oh, you should do A, B, and C. That's not realistic. I don't care, I'm out of here. Yeah. So it's grounded in really practical solutions, which is great. We also started by mostly stopping bad projects. Hmm. Don't do that condo project. Don't build that seawall. Don't Hmm. close that access. It was reactive. Hmm. And as we've grown, sort of two things have happened. One is, if we work together in, in regions, we can scale. An uh, example would be we're banning plastic bags in San Clemente, then in uh, Newport Beach, and then in Monterey. And then we're like, hey, we have 20 chapters in California. If we can all work together, we can go to Sacramento and ban bags statewide, which we did. Wow. So we started, and that required capacity. Now we have a woman who's the California policy manager. So she's herding the 20 California chapter cats to get work done at the state level. Mm. And we also started getting more proactive instead of just waiting for hearing about bad things happening and trying to stop them. Mm -hmm. We started saying, okay, we know what the problems are. How can we proactively start to 
get ahead of them instead of just waiting for them to come to us. Yeah. The grassroots organizer, Marshall Gans, who worked with Cesar Chavez, Mm -hmm. he has said that like when it comes to organizing, he felt like they needed three things. Um, story, strategy, and structure. Yep. Hearing your story, I hear I hear those different elements like that. Yep. So that story of you know getting that win up in Humboldt and having that strategy that you know is looking at who influences who, what's the theory of change here. Yep. And then the grassroots model and all of the other layers to manage that that structure in order to have you know that effect on a global level with local issues mandated by local people you you are spot on i mean and you know part of the story is hey surfers taking care of these places in the wildlife conservation world they talk about charismatic megafauna everybody's interested in saving the rhino the giraffe the elephant and the dolphin <laughs> nobody really cares about like the random endangered like centipede that maybe yeah. is the rat like mammal yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and you know the surfers in some ways are like the charismatic megafauna <laughs> uh, uh, of the coastal world you know they're <laughs> people love surfing and surfers and uh, yeah. so that's part of this and they're an unlikely hero yeah still to this day people are, you know we won that huge beach access case this fall up in with Vinod uh, Kosla. San Mateo, with Vinod Kosla. Yeah. There's no question he underestimated us because he thought it was a bunch of surfers. Yeah. So that's part of the story. And our structure now, we call it the like one ten hundred structure, which is one headquarters, 10 regions, 100 mm. chapters. Mm. You know, and that's getting to your structure point. And so we organize, you know, we're taking out oil drawing, federal issue. It's at the one level. We have 100 chapters, our whole network, 200 chapters and clubs working on that. We do things at the regional level and we have a strategy for 10 regions around the country. And then we have this network on the ground that's local. Hmm. You know, we look for things at the local level that can scale up to the top. Yeah. If today I wanted to start a new chapter, um, how does it work? So all of our chapters also are kind of organically born. So we haven't like placed them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Community comes together and we sort of have an onboarding process. You need to organize a group of people. You need to set up an executive committee. You need to sign up a certain number of members. You need to have a plan. So we have a, like a, a process, application process. Yeah. Then you're sort of on probation for six <laughs> months, essentially like in an organizing model. And you need to develop campaigns and programs. And if you sort of follow all the steps through that process, then our board charters a chapter. Hmm. They get a bank account. They, they get our nonprofit registration. So they're like, welcome into the family. And part of the model here is we're all one 501c3 ah. nonprofit corporate entity. And the chapters benefit from that structure. So they get a lot of services, whether that's bank account and audit and you know legal support, kind of the corporate business side of it. Mm-hmm. They also get organizing training and they get expertise and they get IP from our programs and branding and all of that. In some ways, it's like a franchise mm-hmm. model. So if you're like opening up a McDonald's or a Starbucks, you get the kit. The same thing and completely not the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. No, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> the best analogies. Yeah. The Happy Meal doesn't look exactly the same. Yeah. But sort of in terms of like how we structure ourselves, we look to those entities for modeling for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So there's this stage of not just applying, but as you called it, probation or tryout or essentially making sure that chapter is solid, serious, set up for success Yeah. before they come into the fold as an even more like official part 
of the organization. Yeah, we charter them so it becomes official. And who's part of that board? Is it made up of both members and sort of other chapter leaders? Or is that like the board of the nonprofit? Yeah, it's the board of the nonprofit. So, you know, we have like a our board kind of ranges between 15 and 25 Mm -hmm. people. It's your classic nonprofit board. Ours tends to be made up of three or four groups of people. There are some chapter people on there, so we stay true to the model. Mm-hmm. It's in our bylaws that we have chapter representatives on the board. Yeah, We tend to have some sort of business finance money people because fundraising is you know always a challenge with a charity. Um, we tend to have some action sports folks and people connected to the outdoor industry on our board. And then we have some lawyers and policy experts. We really have some of the best sort of legal and policy minds on ocean and coastal issues in the country on our board and volunteering Mm -hmm. as lawyers, which we're really fortunate to have. Yeah, that's rad. The work of a surf rider chapter leader is no joke. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we always feel like people are surprised by is the willingness for someone to participate in something and give so many hours to something when they're not getting paid to do it. Like it seems like everyone always has their mind blown by that. And at least in the business side. Yeah. I still do like every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that everybody has different experiences that lead them to raise their hand and say, I want to open a chapter in my area. But what are some of your guys' instincts around, you know, what gets someone to cross that line? Yeah. Because it's a big responsibility. Like you could be leading legal cases. You're organizing all sorts of different people. Like you said, you're in probation. There's different roles that they have to fill in their areas. Like how does someone get to that point where they decide that they're going to take this on? The first line people cross is they, they show up. People are following us on social media. They maybe are sending in their $25 membership. Mm -hmm. They're reading the newsletter. So they're supporting Surfrider and they're sort of engaged emotionally, but they're doing it from like their living room. Mm -hmm. Those people, by the way, are hugely important because they help fund the work and, you know, they're part of our collective group. And they're also the pool from which the activists come from. Um, But then something happens when they cross the line, right? And they show up. That moment when they show up physically is a huge deal for an organization that's run by grassroots volunteers. That could be, you know, movie night, some sort of social activation. It could be an informational thing. We have some experts speaking. It could be um, a beach cleanup. Coastal cleanups, yeah. You know, and part of what we really try to do, and this I think will get to the core of your question, is we try to make it fun, meaningful, and community-oriented. So people who show up usually show up because they're curious or they they want to make a difference. But the reason they stick around and then invest, because you show up at a beach cleanup, then you find yourself leading the beach cleanups, then there's a plastic bag ban or some kind of civic campaign, and you're going to get engaged in that. And then you're recruiting people to that, mm-hmm. and then you're training people, and then you're on our executive committee, and you're running the whole chapter, right? So it's this kind of path that people take. Um, Commitment curve. Yeah, exactly. And the reason they do that is because it's fun. There's an amazing community. So like the chapters that are humming is it, people come because they want to see their friends. Yeah, who are absolutely. Their, who are their friends because they're doing the work. They're actually making a difference. So they're feeling a tangible output. And that is at some level, that's satisfaction. It's also ego. So, you know, you show up and you see a dirty beach and you spend two hours cleaning that beach and you turn around and you look back at it and there's a giant pile of 
bags Mm -hmm. and there's a beach with no litter on it and you feel a sense of satisfaction and hopefully you made some friends and you're like, wow, that made a difference. I feel good. Um, Or my favorite is when we're doing like something at a city council meeting because, you know, civic engagement Mm -hmm. is a huge part of this, which is frankly something we need more of in our country. Oh, absolutely. That's why we are where we are. Yes. Uh, And and, uh, (laughs) that starts in your town. So I love it when someone's like, I got to go to a, it's, it's actually terrifying, right? I'm going to go to a city council meeting. My mom does it. Stand up and talk. Yeah. 50 year old woman freaked minutes. out to stand on the microphone. Yeah. You know, it's a risk. And the process is confusing. I got to mm-hmm. sign up. Where's my issue? When is it on the agenda? There's yeah. eight people with microphones behind a dais. They're usually like up higher than Languid you. voices, they, dry faces. Yeah. They're doing it every day. Half yeah. the time they're like texting <laughs> while you're talking to them. And, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> that whole process is terrifying. So, I, you know, one of my favorite things at Surfriders, we get these phone calls. I'm going to the city council meeting. I'm freaked out. Like, what do I do? I, I don't know if I know everything. This mm. is terrifying. And we coach them through that process. And then they hopefully get 10 of their friends to show up because at a local meeting, if 15 people show mm. up, you're a mob. Huh. And they get up in front of the microphone. You know, they give their testimony. They're like shaking mm. like a leaf. Um, <laughs> Public speaking, right? Their number one fear. Toastmasters uh, X uh, Surfrider, next collabo. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And um, the city council responds. They realize, oh my God, I am the expert in the room mm. because I've been thinking about this. And then they win. And then you get the phone call the next day like, we won. Yeah. You know? And they are so pumped. Yeah. It's like a sporting mm. event. Yeah. And then they go on and say, hey, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You see that happen. And we have 535 victories, I think, since 2006. So each one of those, if you think about it, it's like a little sporting event hmm. that took place. And there was like some challenge. And these group of people got in there and they campaigned, they lobbied, they recruited their friends, they had a compelling argument, and they convinced this decision-making body to make a decision to make the coast cleaner, healthier. Yeah. So I love it. I wanted to zoom in on that. You just mentioned victories. Yes. And to be honest, Chad, behind your back, whenever we're presenting to people, we we bring up this coastal victories metric that you guys have all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't think that many communities understand exactly what you were saying earlier about feeling like you're connected to something and that belonging of this like higher level of participation that, you know, it's one thing to affect your local world and community and life. Yes. And the value that Surfrider adds is also this like higher meta impact and understanding that. And yep, they're happening all over. You're part of something bigger. Yeah. And the design of this coastal victory that you guys use to me is so artful in giving all of the victories value, but mm-hmm. also really showing the impact the organization has by coming together. So can you just explain what a coastal victory is so that everybody who's listening gets it and then yep. talk a little bit more about why you guys came up with that metric and what it does for you? The, a coastal victory for us means that an official decision made in the benefit of the coastal and ocean environment or access to it. So basically... It means that some official decision-making body, that could be a city council, that could be a regulatory body like the Corps of Engineers, it could be the state legislature, it could be the Department of Interior in the federal level, but it needs to be an official decision-making body that has a legal authority, and then the decision they make has to actually have make a tangible difference. Mm. The beach access was opened. 
bags are banned, the seawalls prohibited, whatever, you know, the Marine Reserve is established, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be a legal victory too. So we wanted to make sure it was something that was real. If you get 50 people to show up at a public hearing, that's a win. But if you lose the vote, and it only it doesn't actually the world didn't get any better. Yeah. Uh, so it had to be real in terms of its impact. We wanted to make sure that on the backside of it, something measurable was happening. The environment is affected. Yeah. One of the things it's funny because it all goes back to the grassroots model. So today we have like 113 active campaigns all over the United States. Those campaigns could and they're varied because they're relative to what's going on in that community. So. Beach access is a huge issue in Florida. So, mm. you know, it's not a big deal in Oregon. Mm. So it could be like a wetland protection case in Santa Monica. It could be a balloon release ban because that's what, you know, a common item of liver in New Jersey. And it could be a beach access fight in Florida and a sea level rise issue in San Diego. So like what's the commonality in all of these different places and all of these different issues that our chapters are are working on. So we, we tried to find something that like we, we could apply to all of them and all of them are campaigns, meaning they've like decided on an outcome and they know who the decision maker is and they're trying to compel that decision maker to make that outcome. Yeah. And so that's how we got to victory. We're like, okay. And they're not all even right. Like one could be stopping offshore drilling across the country, massive national campaign that took three years or stopping this toll road at trestles that took us a decade. And one could be a banning smoking on the beaches in your town, which might've taken three days. Yeah. But you feel like you're contributing. Yeah. They all matter and they're all additive. It was the common theme across all of the work that we do. So that's kind of how we, how we got to it. And I mean, as you said, the other thing it did, which I think actually was incidental is it created a culture. So we have like a, we have a monthly victory call Hmm. and our chapter's come in and it's kind of like posting the wins and uh, it's celebratory. And so people are like, oh, we got this, we got that. We get three or four of them a a month. Wow. Yeah. So it created this culture of like, hey, we're focused. Well, let's focus on the outcomes. Let's not just throw a party in a fundraiser and tell people to avoid straws. Let's actually like get real work done. Yeah. It creates a sense of like progress. Yeah. So part of the whole volunteer network is, you know, you need, people need to be seeing results and feeling like they're making a difference to stay engaged. Yeah. You know, if we're like, Hey, we're all going to work together in like seven years, we're going to see an outcome. It's really hard to compel people to stay involved. Yeah. How do the different chapters share what they learned about achieving a certain victory? Cause I just imagine that if you achieve, you know, uh, a plastic bag ban in one area, there's something to learn from there in another area. How are those, uh, I guess, learnings or resources shared among the different, you know, activists? We haven't hit the holy grail on perfect hive mind sharing, mm-hmm. but what we do, we hire a regional staff, part of that one ten hundred structure. So there are people who are managing six or seven chapters. So they're connecting the dots at that level. We do regional training every year. So the California chapters get together, Pacific Northwest chapters get together for info exchange. We have this monthly call. Yeah. And uh, this year, actually, we're doing a national summit to bring all of our sort of top activists from around the country together to share. Cool. We have a intranet for our chapters. It doesn't get used as much as I think it maybe could, but mm-hmm. we're looking for ways to create information exchange and share stories as much as possible. Yeah. I'd love to switch gears and ask a question about sustainability. How long has Surfrider been around right now? It's 
30, 30 or years. 35 years this summer. Wow. Dang. 35. Yeah. That's what we're doing this big summit. It's our 35th anniversary. <laughs> cool. Where, where's the summit at? I assume it's somewhere you can surf. It's going to be in Southern California at UC Irvine. So. Go Eaters. Cool. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. There's a sculpture on campus of an anteater. I remember that thing. Yes. I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that one of the charismatic megafauna? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think so. Full circle. I'm, I'm trying to find the less, <laughs> lesser known charismatic megafauna. Um, I, you know, in short, the slightly charismatic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the <laughs> to be discovered charismatic. Um, yes. In short, it's about, you know, how do you keep the foundation afloat? You know, I was just speaking to um, a woman organizing uh, kind of the Asian American female community. And she's, you know, just a, a year or two old and um, has gotten some real traction. And it's like just starting to figure out, I really want to actually pay a headquarters team to do this. With, uh, you know, 35 years under your belt, like what do you feel like the Surfrider Foundation does that is maybe innovative or most helpful to keeping the money coming in, the revenue coming in in order to support the important work you do? I think that's a really important point. So Surfrider is built around volunteers and these volunteer grassroots chapters, and that is the engine that gets all the work done at Surfrider. But we have 60 staff people, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we have a budget that's, you know, over $6 million a year. We're like a solidly mid-sized NGO, I think. You know, there's a lot of smaller ones than us and a lot of bigger ones like Oceana or Ocean Conservancy. But, you know, it's a business and it's a, there's a, there are people running the, the machine that is Surfrider to keep it all going, mm-hmm. to see those impacts. And, um, and so I think that shouldn't be lost. You know, and the, those are accountants and HR people and lawyers and all, you know, to manage it. And also policy experts and uh, local and regional organizers and people who are running our programs. So there are people, staff, keeping the, the whole thing running. I think it's really efficient because we have thousands of volunteers, hundreds of chapters and clubs, and then a smaller staff. So, you know, it's this pyramid, but we do. And so, you know, we need to raise that money and we are a charity and that is hard work. <laughs> There's no question about it. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting how I can't tell you how many people from the private sector I've bumped into over my 20 years here who are like, oh, no problem. I'm going to raise you guys millions of dollars. It's easy. Uh, and then they come in and they realize just how hard it is because, yeah. you know, mm. there isn't a return on investment that's financial. It's not like an investing in a business where you hope and, you know, no one's going to sell Surfrider at the end of the day and have a big windfall. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, people are giving money. The ROI is a cleaner and healthier coast, Mm. which is, you know, a little bit less direct. That said, we've been growing and uh, we continue to grow and our net, we're not at full capacity. We have more chapters and more activists and more interests than we have the capacity to support. So, you know, we have growth goals that are based on full support of the network Mm. and we're we're constantly chasing that. And that's a good problem to have. That means there's more people out there interested mm. than we can keep up with. Yeah. And the future only holds more interest. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Like and so is- we're just trying to, you know, make sure we can give the chapters and the programs, the services and support that they, they, you know, we have 20 active lawsuits. We could probably have 30 if we had another lawyer on staff. Yeah. It's the cl- kind of the classic kind of model of an NGO supporter. We have a membership program, yeah. which is really important. Those 50,000 members, those are like dues paying members. 25 bucks. It's less than your Starbucks budget for the week for most people. 
And what do they get in exchange from you guys? Is it just the sense of contribution? I, I know this, if, if you don't live on a coast, you may not know that like the surf rider bumper sticker, or, you know, is a thing, yeah. but it, what, why, yeah. what do they, cause that's a lot of people. What do they get in exchange from you guys? We have sort of the sliding scale. So for 25 bucks, you get a sticker for 50 bucks, you get a t-shirt, you know, so you kind of get some, some swag. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You get a newsletter. Mostly you get the satisfaction that you're paying your small part to support the network. Yep, the work. And, you know, I I kind of feel like, hey, look, these people who are going to these city council meetings are putting in hours of their time. Yeah. And and if you can't do that, and a lot of people can't because their lives are busy, you know, if they send in their 25, 50, 100 bucks a year, they are uh, supporting that person's ability to be effective at that meeting. So that's kind of how I like to try to frame it is like, hey, I know you can't spend three hours at the meeting, but what would that three hours of time be worth to you if it's going to clean your beaches? Yeah. You know, and so we, we, we have that. The victory metric also was a desire to show impact. So I think it's really important to be able to show our supporters that the work is making a measurable difference mm-hmm. so that they can feel like the dollar that they invest will result in something real. Mm-hmm. Scott Harrison, the charity water uh, mm-hmm. leader, you know, who's one of the done this maybe better than everyone else. You know, he, he actually talked about when he started that he formed two bank accounts, the direct money. So, you know, $10 buys a filter, goes to a family in Africa yeah. and you knew your money went there hundred percent. And he, he, in some ways, has done the nonprofit world almost a disservice because everyone thinks, oh, the money should go straight to the cause. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did a recent podcast uh, with the, what's his name, the LinkedIn guy? Reed Hoffman. Uh, uh, Reed Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah, Reed Hoffman, yeah, Masters of Scale. Yep. You know, and he talked about his other account, which was the admin account. Yeah. And he, you know, he almost went broke at one point because he had all this money going into the filters, hmm. nothing to run the machine. Somebody has got to like put that thing in an envelope and send mm-hmm. it. Um, he did a nice job of saying, Hey, it's really hard to raise money yeah. to run the machine. Cause nobody, everyone wants the impact, not realizing that there's human energy and capacity behind that. Um, so the membership thing has been huge for us. It, it's a sign of our influence, but it's also a, a revenue generator, you know, ensuring that we have impact and we really can tell people what we're doing. And, and I think the fact that there are people out there doing tangible things that are visible yep. helps too. And we're, you know, we're like, a, I guess, I don't know what you call a 35-year-old. Um, we're not middle-aged yet. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're, we're well-established. And so we have a track record to show for our our work and that matters too, right? Yeah. Like, All right I'm going to invest in these guys. They seem they're getting stuff done. And what about partnerships too? Because I think you guys have built a brand over the course of the 35 years that is powerful and resonates with people. And Kevin was a big fan of the Everlane partnership. Oh, yeah, I was you guys on Everlane did. for Black Friday. And yes, like, thank is, you. This is not just like a and you know some proceeds go to Surfrider like little banner. This was like an education on plastic pollution yeah on plastic pollution it was full front page it felt like i don't know really strong messaging that was a partnership truly between two you know organizations that care that was a huge win for us and them uh it came together really well and it's a good example of what you're talking about i mean surfrider is sort of unique and, and fortunate that we have like this kind of like cool brand a lot of other NGOs that do heroes work, whether that's the Natural Resource Defense Council mm-hmm. or the Sierra Club, 
their brand isn't like a, a surf brand or a cool brand. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that we, we certainly benefit from. And so there are a lot of businesses that want to work with us and brands that want to work with us and partner with us. The other thing Everlane did, and they drove us to do this, they're like, how much does it cost to pick up a pound of trash? Uh, you know, and there's other groups that are doing that too, but we were like, all right, it costs us 13 bucks. And so they, you know, they were willing to give $13 every, every, uh, purchase they give $13. So they were able to quantify the impact, which I think is important to do. And I think these brands, they like the, the positive nature. We're trying to make activism fun. It's serious business, but that doesn't mean we can't be sort of celebratory in what we're trying to accomplish. It's real people making a difference in communities. So they like the fact that it's authentic. And there are other groups that are more top down that are lobbyists and lawyers and scientists and economists. And we work with those groups all the time and they're hugely important. It's, their work's just not as visible. You know, there's yep. surfighter tents popping up in communities all over the the country. So yeah. we've been really fortunate. We have uh, a bunch of partnerships in the surf industry, which is actually how I, we first met. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and we have a bunch of other sort of larger, like non-surf industry partnerships too, like Everlane, um, Ren Skincare. Mm-hmm. They have to, uh, we also do a really strict due diligence process. So they've got to be a company that's doing good, minimizing their impact uh, and means well, you know, there are other partners that have come, we turned down more than we accept. Yeah. You know, Coca-Cola came to us and we're like, Hey, you know, you guys are fighting the elimination of plastic bottles in national parks. Not cool. Yeah. We can't, we can't partner with you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's inspiring to hear. I, I feel like that due diligence and you know, staying true and thinking about this, uh, new brand as not just a, a new sponsor of the community, but like, they would become a member of the community. Yes. Uh, And how do they stand for the same things that we stand for? And if they don't, it could look great, you know, on the surface, but, you know, would it really ring true for the purpose of Surfrider? No. People have long memories. Yeah. So if it's a great partnership like the Everlane thing, because they are a brand that actually has a lot of integrity and they're doing great things, you know, and nobody walked into my meeting when I talked to their staff (laughs) about plastics with a bottle, and that's awesome. But if we did a really bad one, We'd hear about it and, you know, Surfrider as an organization has a lot of credibility and integrity and we want to maintain that. Yeah. I didn't realize that you have been working at Surfrider for so long. Forever. Um, yeah. How old were you when you first joined? If you don't mind me asking, where is it? No, like, no, really no, I, I don't, no, I, I don't care at all. I'm, <laughs> I, it was 1998. So I was 28 years old. Okay. I think there were six employees at Surfrider. Wow. Um, I tell people if, if Surfrider was like a dot com or startup, I'd be rich because <laughs> it's, it's boomed. I am rich in many other ways, not financial, uh, in terms of experience. But yeah, so I've been here for 20 years. It just keeps getting more fun. So I can't, I can't stop. What, and I'm what also like, there I'm, in the first place, why, why did 28 year old Chad end up at Surfrider? I was a, I w- I'm like a mailroom to the CEO story. So I was actually a <laughs> grad student intern in 1995 at Surfrider. I was getting my master's in coastal environmental management at Duke University. I was broke and I came home. My parents lived 20 minutes up the road. I lived with Mm -hmm. them and I volunteered for free at Surfrider for the summer and did some odd jobs around to make some money. Loved it. Knew I wanted to get involved in coastal issues. You know, I was like a beach guy and a surfer my whole life. Uh, knew I wanted to get involved in environmental issues. And uh, so I was like, well, this is the group. Yeah. Um, so it was my dream job. Uh, volunteered here, hoping to get a job. Mm-hmm. Three years later, I got like a, 
environmental program job because I have a science background. I've just been working my way up the ladder ever since. Hmm. And this will be my last question. It's going to be a hard one, but um, what's a really personal moment for you, a surf rider, that when you think back on your work, you think that really brings to life the meaning and the impact that this being my job has brought to my life and to my world? God, that's a great question. It's There's been so, so many. I mean, and it's so ingrained with sort of who I am and what I do at this point. It's almost hard to separate. But yeah, um, you are your, I, your I, work. I, yeah, I, I you know I think I think two things. One, I have twin boys that are seventeen, and uh, they're amazing surfers. And watching them sort of like grow up and like you know hopefully have a better, cleaner ocean, which is sort of cliche, but it's so true. Uh, inspires me all the time, and just that I've been able to give them that life. Yeah, I love. All the things that we're learning, they're doing intuitively. So that's interesting to see too. Mm. Um, and second is that the human network of Surfrider is the richest thing. I, you know, I, I have friends in every coastal community around the country, and these are the activists who are now my friends and my heroes. And so the human network that is Surfrider is so enriching. And so I just feel so, so lucky about that. You know, and I've, I've known people in communities in, you know, I'm trying to think of one, you know, whether it's Portland, Maine or, you know, Satellite Beach, Florida for 20, 25 years now, I've watched their kids grow up. I've, you know, seen their parents die. I've seen them get married with all the life's dramas. Uh, And these are people who are, you know, we've been in this fight together for this whole time. So that probably, you know, why join Surfrider? You know, you're going to have friends for life. And I hear people say, this is the best thing that I've ever done, Hmm. you know, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Beyond all the good work we're doing, there's that human element that's probably, you know, equally valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that resonates for Kevin, but to me, my relationships, I'm just like, if I can meet more, have more better relationships year over year in my life, like that's doing pretty well. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, and that's, I mean, that's the thing at the end of the day is a human network, right? And that's probably one of the commonalities that you find in your exploration of networks and it's the people and the way that they interact. And, uh, if you can create that positive cycle, that's when things just go. Yeah, absolutely. Rad. I'm about to say rad, so Chad. Cool. Rad, Chad. I'm yeah, sure you've I like never it. heard that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the hanging Chad jokes. Oh, God. Yeah, those are probably a rough You might be years. too young for that. I don't no. know. No. Oh, my God. I tried to buy hanging Chads on eBay. Yes. Find any. Yes. Yeah. Do you know the hanging Chad? Chad? I do, of course. Okay, thank God. Uh, Chad, thanks for giving us some of your time. We're, we're such yeah. fans of your guys', so thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, great talking to you guys. Thank you so much. If you want to get involved with Surfrider, maybe to bring it to your part of the world or just to sign up as a member or get involved as an activist, just visit surfrider.org. Straightforward, surfrider.org. And they also have a legit Instagram account. You can tune into that. Their username is at surfrider, one word. Cool. You can find out more about us at our website, peopleand.company. It's not a .com. It's a .company. Mm -hmm. And we're writing a handbook uh, called Get Together. Get it? The podcast is The Get Together, and this book is Get Together, and it'll be published later this year. We're writing it together. (laughs) Uh, It's a guide to cultivating a community based on what we've learned from conversations like this. You can sign up to get notified uh, and stay in the loop on our website, or you can just say hi to us. Email us at hi at peopleand.company. Oh, and one last thing. What's the last thing, Bailey? If you could be so generous... 
please feel free to review this podcast. Yes. Ideally positively, but Fe- you know. Feel free. Free country, free world. <laughs> Recommended. Feel free. Feel free. We hear it makes a big difference, reviewing <laughs> and subscribing. So uh, if you think it's good, please do that. That's all. Yeah. Thank you. All right. See ya. See ya.